Good morning, everybody. Let's stand up. How's everybody feeling? I hope people are feeling good today. I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm... So, Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. We ask for your blessing, your favor upon what we're doing. Thank you for every person that's here, every person that's watching. I pray that you'll anoint me with the breath of your spirit to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Come with me to Joshua. The book of Joshua, chapter 6. Not exactly sure where this is going this morning, so <laughs> hopefully it might be really short. <clears throat> yeah, right. Promises, promises, huh? Verse 17. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. And make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury house of the Lord. So, of course, (laughs) of course it shall. (laughs) I'm sorry, I just find that funny. Like, destroy everything, but keep the treasure. That's the Lord's. That shall come. Okay. Anyway. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, and then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. I want you to imagine that. But Joshua had said to the two men who spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. She must have been some kind of harlot. That's all I got to (laughs) say. Sorry. It's totally inappropriate. Sorry. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all of her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. So they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day. Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out, sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time saying, look at this, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Now if you will come with me to first Kings. If I can find it. First Kings 16. 
First Kings 16, verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Jacob, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which had been spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So we see the historical event and the curse that Joshua, I'm going to move this. My mic is still kind of like too hot. I don't know what the the thing is for me, but I'm like having to keep my voice down so I'm not getting ringing. Um, So we see the historical story. That's a little better, thanks. We see the historical story in... The book of Joshua, where Joshua puts a curse. They, they go into Jericho. That's the first city in the promised land that they take. You, you probably know the first part of the story. He, he tells them to circle the city seven times and then give it for seven days and then give a shout and then the walls would collapse and then they would go in and there's this massacre. Everybody old, young, um, donkeys, cattle, everything that breathes basically is completely destroyed. Then they steal the treasures. And then they burn the whole place to the ground, right? For the glory of God. <laughs> and, then, and then Joshua makes this statement. He says, anybody who tries to rebuild this, this destruction is so utter that anybody who rebuilds this city will lay the foundation with their firstborn son, the death or the blood of their firstborn son, and will hang its gates with the death of its youngest son. And then several centuries later, we see during the time of King Hezekiah, there's a guy named Hael who comes from Bethel and rebuilds Jerusalem and the fulfillment of that curse takes place for the rebuilding of the city. So we've been looking at and kind of exploring for a while these sort of violent images of God that are in the Old Testament. And... If we're intellectually honest, if we're spiritually honest, it's kind of a problem for us because we have a tendency to preach this sort of grace and peace and love and kindness and love for enemies and all that stuff that Jesus taught. But then on the flip side of that, we have this God of war, really, and bloodshed in the Old Testament that we see repeated over and over and over throughout the pages of the text. Now, here's something that's very interesting. When you look at the archaeological and historical evidence for the destruction of Jericho. Not only is the evidence not there, there is evidence that is absolutely contrary to what the Bible tells us actually happened. So let me explain this a little bit. How many of you uh, ever you know, looked at this or whatever, you were part of a church, part of a Bible study, saw some videos, saw something on the History Channel that talked about biblical archaeology. And you were under the impression that there was lots of biblical archaeology, or lots of archaeological evidence that supported the biblical stories. And people try to bring that out and say, see, this is proof that the Bible stories really happened. Can, can I see your hands? Is there anybody like that today? Okay, so several of you. <clears throat> All right, here's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. 
Now, at the risk of being very controversial, <clears throat> but very truthful, and you can check this out for yourself, you have to understand the political investment and the financial investment of the world in the nation of Israel. I don't know if it ever bothered anybody else but me that a lot of the uh, people in Israel look very European. <laughs> Even Netanyahu. When everybody else in the area, the region, uh, has darker colored skin, frankly. You ever notice that? You ever ask yourself the question, why is that? <laughs> you have to go back to the context. Let's just take it back. There's, there's a deeper context than this, but let's just take it back to the events around the Jews and World War II. At the end of World War II, there, there, there was already a, a movement. So, okay, so let's back up even further. About the, how many of you have heard of the Spanish Inquisition? <laughs> you know what the Spanish Inquisition was about? It was about Europeans who were leaving the Catholic faith and converting themselves to Judaism. So these aren't people who were the natural seed of Abraham. These were people who adopted Jewish customs around, what, the 12th, 13th, 14th century. You got it? So they established these Jewish communities and they were, there was a lot of tension and whatever within Europe that came to a peak under Adolf Hitler and World War II. And at the end of the Holocaust, there were all these Europeans who converted to Judaism who wanted to get out of Europe and find some place for refuge. And most countries were denying them any access, including the United States. So the United Kingdom, Great Britain, was still a major, major, was the major world power prior to World War II. And the truth of the matter is there was a secret meeting between Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill on a submarine where the U.S. agreed to get involved, not necessarily troops and whatever, but to get involved in World War II if the U.K. would share some of their financial power with the United States, which is why the United States was able to become uh, the power that we were after World War II, and also why the U.K. lost some of their power and influence. Okay, this is all established historically, right? So the United Kingdom still is colonized and whatever and established throughout the world, including... Jerusalem, and Israel. So you have a group of European Jews that need a homeland, and you have Great Britain, together with some other of the UN powers, who have the ability to force them into Palestine by throwing out the Palestinians. Are you breathing? And that's what happened. So if you want to understand the Palestinian angst towards the West, that might help you a little bit. They just threw them out. 
couldn't come back for their things. They had no homeland. They had no house. They had no provision. They couldn't go back for their things. And now all of a sudden you have Europeans occupying that. Supported by a Christian community in the United States that was completely ignorant. Married to Old Testament customs, saying this is the seed of Abraham, and they have a right to the land, and just like Joshua and them wiped out the occupants because God gave them a right to that land, they have the right to do it today, without realizing that the voting block and the vast majority had been completely hoodwinked. So now whenever somebody says anything about negotiating the land or whatever, people stand up and say, oh my God, oh my God, God's going to curse the the U.S. because we've got against Israel. Ah." And then, you know, national disasters are going to happen. It's just part of life. There's going to be hurricanes, there's going to be tornadoes, there's going to be stuff. When Sadie was, was displaced during Katrina, right? And, and there was people saying, well, so-and-so made a statement in favor of the Palestinians against Israel on the UN floor like a few months before Katrina, and so therefore Katrina is God's judgment. And then it scares people into voting a policy that's absolutely unjust. Back to biblical archaeology. So you have to understand there was a vested interest politically, geopolitically, and financially, to prove historically the validity of the Old Testament accounts. So early archaeology was done by Zionists. So they had a vested interest in proving those stories to be true. And so a lot of what you read as quote-unquote, biblical archaeology, is merely that. Now, several decades later, other archaeologists have been allowed to go in and excavate and look and report. And guess what? To an expert, everyone outside of the Zionistic paradigm says, Not only is there no evidence that Jericho was destroyed, like the Bible says, the evidence actually contradicts it. So in other words, they can, they know where Jericho was, they can excavate it, they know how deep down to go to find the time period. Are you tracking with me? And here's the truth. Jericho was never a walled city. It was a village. There is absolutely no evidence. There are no skeletons, like mass skeletons, or absolutely no evidence of the city ever being, the people ever being killed, and the city ever being destroyed with fire. In fact, the evidence is to the contrary of that, because people kept living there. Oh my God, Pastor Aaron, what are you doing? You're taking away my Bible, you're you're taking away the... What are you trying to do? <clears throat> Thank you. So, but see, here's my issue. Do you, do you really want to believe that God ordered this extinction? Or would you rather believe 
that it was a story that was part of Israel's history that never happened. Which would you rather believe? Would you rather believe in a God that does those things? And you have to ask yourself, why isn't he doing them today? Or maybe he is, and maybe that's why we should be supporting Europeans who really aren't the seed of Abraham to go kill Palestinians, many of whom are Christian brothers and sisters. All right. So then you come to this story. But see, here's the, the scripture is doing something <laughs> besides just trying to tell you historically things that happened. <clears throat> here's Jericho. Get the principles. Forget the history. The history. Here's the principles. Jericho represents that which is cursed. Everybody just say with me, that which is cursed. That which is, if you will, under the judgment of God. Right? And death and destruction. What it represents. And then it carries a curse with it. If anybody dares to rebuild it, there's going to be a curse of death because it represents death. If anybody goes into death and dares to reconstruct it and rebuild it and bring life to it, because that's what you're doing. You're taking a desolate area and you're building, you're bringing life to it. Anybody that dares to do that, they're going to do it with the death of their firstborn and basically all their kids are going to die in the process because that's part of the curse, right? Let me, i got to get that guy's name again. First Kings, Hael, Hael. The word El, anytime you see the word El, it's actually the Hebrew word for God. El Shaddai, Elohim, El Elyon. Those are all names for God in the Hebrew. Right? So anytime there's El, <coughs> E-L, it's God. Hai, does anybody know what that is? Anybody that saw a fiddler on the roof? Or Hai means life. So, Hael is actually the life of God. And Hael is from where? Bethel. What is El? What is Beth? It's a house. So, the life of God from the house of God <laughs> rebuilds Jericho. And he laid its foundation on this other guy's name, this other guy, right? Abiram. Abiram sounds like what? Abram? Abraham? Yeah, it means my father is exalted. So the life of God comes from the house of God to rebuild, and he lays the foundation with my father is exalted. And then the death of the youngest, that name translates into he will be revealed as exalted. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that the entire thing is spiritual and represents spiritual principles. And from a very Christocentric, from a Christian perspective, we can look at the death of the firstborn... Because remember, Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. And he certainly came to reveal 
that his father was exalted. And so what I'd like to suggest to you is that there is a messianic prophecy in there (laughs) that Christ is able to take that which is cursed, that which has death and destruction, and that which is under the judgment of God, and completely bring the life of God into it, the house of God into it, completely reverse it, and reveal an exalted reality that is above the reality that you think you're observing. Or the guy's name just happened to be the life of God. He just happened to be from Bethel. and The names of his kids having to do with the exaltation of the Father. It's all just coincidence. Come with me to Romans 7. We'll look at this. Romans 6, I'm sorry. I'll try to make it pertinent to us. Romans 6.23, people love to quote this first part. (laughs) They just leave off the rest of it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies... She, she is released from the law of her husband. <clears throat> so then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she is married to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit for God. The gift of God is what? Eternal life. Now, stop thinking about eternal life as something you inherit when you die. Stop thinking about it as just a length of life that means when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to live forever. Because that's not the meaning in the Greek. In fact, the word eternal doesn't even mean eternal. It literally means of an age or of a specified time period. Or it means of the age to come. It is a quality of life that is completely different than the life that you know in the age you are living. It's, 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 about, it's about a quality of life, not just a quantity of life or length of life. And it's a gift that is imparted to us or can be imparted to us by God right now. 
So what we miss, we miss the entire shift here. We, we, we really act like what Paul is saying because, because people have cherry picked verses. They've quoted verses out of context. They've taken verses and pro- broken them apart like Romans 6.23 and just quoted the parts that served them. And this was the parts that served them. See, see, Paul talks about the powers of this age. The powers of this age. The rulers and the authorities of the darkness of this age. So I want you to understand that there are, there are forces, both visible and invisible, that are invested in keeping you in bondage. That are invested in preventing you from coming to the realization of who you really are and what is actually available to you. And that those powers have infiltrated our minds and our collective consciousness through the twisting, the misquoting, and the misapplication of the scriptures. Oh, Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He tempts him, first of all, to turn stones into bread. Then he tempts him to, uh, uh, you know... Give him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and then he test, then he tempts him with scripture. He takes him into the pinnacle of the temple and he says, Throw yourself down from here, for is it not written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And Jesus looks at him and says, Get away from me, Satan. Because it was a temptation. Do you you understand the powers of darkness are using Scripture to manipulate Jesus? And it's a temptation. Because it's cherry-picked. So I'm going to say it again. There are dark forces that twist and manipulate scriptures and truth for the express purpose of keeping you in a system that is current and consistent with this age and blocking your entrance into accessing the very gift of God, which is the life of an age to come. Okay, so here's how this works. For the wages of sin is death. Paul's not developing a system of salvation. He's talking about two separate systems. He's saying there's one system that is the wages of sin that's based on death. There is another system that is eternal life or the life of an age to come, but it is the gift of God. And you have to, and and, and to be a true Christian, to to be a true follower of Jesus, to be a Christ-like one, then it's to be able to shift from one system into the other system. It's to be able to leave the system of sin and death and move into the system of the gift of God, which is eternal life. So that's why Romans 7 begins begins with those that are under the law have this type of an existence. A, a woman is bound to her husband by the law, and if the husband dies, the law no longer has any control over the situation. You, my brothers and sisters, have all died to that system through the body of Christ. That you might be married to another, right? Which is, which is the life of God. Which is, which he that was resurrected. Now don't get confused here because people think they're supposed to marry Jesus. 
The Catholic Church is the bride of Christ. You get all kinds of people in the charismatic crazy movement running around wearing bridal dresses and, and, and marrying Jesus and all this crazy stuff. God, I've been around too much, I guess. There's some, some of this stuff. Because again, context is important. The, the whole movement, go back and read Romans 6, 7, and 8 together. The whole movement of Romans 6, Paul's saying, look, when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into His death, that you might be raised with Him. <laughs> so whatever happened to Christ, you were, you were involved in, you were, you were connected to. So the Him that's been raised from the dead actually isn't Christ. The Him that's been raised from the dead is you, you just don't know it. And the, and so the you that you have to get connected with is your higher self. The you you have to get connected with is the you that's not bound in the delusion of time and space. That's not bound in the delusion of the law and is, is not poisoned and controlled by the powers of darkness that are controlling you. That want you to think that you're a filthy, rotten sinner. That want you to think you're under the judgment of God. That want you to think you, you, that, that the curse is just everywhere to be found. My God, you eat lucky charms, you're going to get demonized. And so I know churches where you have a problem. It doesn't matter what your problem is. And they have no common sense at all. They totally disconnect from any sense of cause and effect at all. Because their world is plagued by demons. Their world is filled with darkness. And so every little thing can be an entrance. So you might go with a problem. It doesn't matter. Maybe your kids are hooked on drugs. Maybe you have a marriage problem. Maybe you have a financial problem. And they're going to look for the curse. There's a curse on your life. I know. Let's send the intercessors to your house. And let's find what cursed things you have in your house. Oh my God. There's a rainbow. Homosexuals. Use that symbol. You better get rid of that. Oh my goodness. There's cards. We know all that stuff's got to be evil. So you need to get rid of that. Oh my goodness. You have a crystal hanging from your window. Oh, that's the New Age movement, so you got to get rid of that. Like somehow if you clean out your house, now you're going to be blessed. Like like that rock hanging in your wind, window there is somehow connected to the fact that your kid's doing drugs. Or or connected to your poverty curse because because you... Buy your wants and beg your needs. <laughs> you buy your wants and you beg your needs and then complain that you're in poverty and the intercessors come to your house and say, oh, no, 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 it's got to be this. Get rid of that. How did I get off on that? You get it? But that's keeping you locked. That's keeping you, if you will, metaphorically, in Jericho that has been destroyed and cursed. And what God's trying to get you to see is that Chael has come out of Bethel. And all the dying that ever needed to happen has already happened because through the firstborn, (laughs) you died to the law. So now you have a foundation. (laughs) And through the death of the youngest, now the gate has hung. And what does a gate do? What is gate? 
It's an entry point. It's an entry point. It's an access point. So because you, through the body of Christ, died to the law, now you have a foundation from which you can build out of the life of God. You have a foundation out of which you can escape that old system of sin and death. And now you can build out of the gift of eternal life, or you can build out of the life of God. And now you have an access point to a new consciousness that you did not have before. But before you can have an access point to the new consciousness, you've got to die to the old consciousness, which is totally law-based. And you've got to move into the new consciousness, which is totally grace-based and based on the gift of God and based on truth. And I'm going to say it again, based on access to your higher self. Okay, I'm going to do this real quick. Bear with me. In ancient Israel, everything prior to the destruction and their capture and being taken into Babylon was based on temple and temple worship. And it was based on the behavior of the king. If the king did what was right in the sight of the Lord, the people were blessed. If the king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, the people were cursed. It's all throughout that portion of your Bibles that we call 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Yes? So the temple was central and the Davidic kingdom, the the seed line of David was central. Babylon comes in and what happens? They completely wipe out the temple. They completely destroy it and they cut off the Davidic lineage to the throne. And they take the people into captivity. And while they're in Babylon, a new system develops. A whole new system and concept develops that is around the law of Moses now. It's not around temple worship, and it's not based on the king, because there is no king. And the blame shifts from the king. If the king does right, it goes good. If the king does wrong, it goes good. The blame now shifts and says the people are to blame. Because they didn't follow the law to the letter. And because they didn't follow the law to the letter. See, Deuteronomy, that book that tells you all that, you know, if you disobey, all these curses are going to come upon you, all that stuff, is a late addition to the Bible. You just didn't know it. And it came after the Babylonian captivity. Because now, again, politically, we need to blame somebody. And it can't be the king. And we don't have a temple, so the temple's been decentralized. So they introduced Moses as the main character in the story of Israel. He was never the main character in the story of Israel until after the Babylonian captivity. David was the main story, the main character in the story. Are you breathing? So they come out, but there's a group of prophets, there's a group of mystics that they still want to have that temple experience of worship. And so what they begin to do is they be through through methods of meditation, through through methods of 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 getting into states of ecstasy, or really, if you want to be modern about it, altered states of consciousness where they can experience the throne room of God. And so Ezekiel you don't know your Bible, it's okay, just stay with, stay with me. Ezekiel becomes the main figure in this, in this time period in Israel's history. And Ezekiel chapter 1, he has an experience where the heavens are opened and he sees the throne of God. And he looks and on the throne he sees one like the Son of Man sitting on the throne 
and he's got fire from his waist down and fire from his waist up. And he says, this is the likeness of the glory of God. He doesn't say this is the glory of God. He doesn't say this is the Son of Man. He says it's the likeness of the Son of Man and the likeness of the glory of God. And then God speaks to Ezekiel and he says, Son of Man, arise. And it's the word for resurrection. So these Jewish mystics are looking at this, and so here's what they say. They say the person, the likeness, the image that Ezekiel sees on the throne is his own. He's not seeing the Lord, and he's not seeing Jesus. In a Jewish mind, he's not seeing Jesus because they, they don't believe in Jesus. This is before Jesus. He's seeing himself. And this is an experience that mystics and devout Jewish followers at the time of Jesus are wanting to have. So Paul comes along, or Saul of Tarsus, and what's he doing? He's throwing Christians into prison. He's there when Stephen was stoned. He's, he's vehemently against this new Christian movement. And he's a keeper of the law. Why would the keeper of the law be vehemently against Christianity? Because the two systems are diametrically opposed. And I'm talking about being a genuine follower of Christ versus adhering to some religious system and collective conscious agreements. You're tracking with me. But the other thing we know about Paul from the ancient writings, or Saul of Tarsus, was that he would have been seeking this Ezekiel-type experience. So yes, the heavens open and he meets Jesus, because in the story he says, Who are you, my Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Right? But the rest of Paul's writings are about this union between you and Christ, about Christ in you. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he even says, Jesus Christ is in you. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, God revealed his Son in me, not to me. So in the context of the history, when when Saul of Tarsus has that vision, he's also... Seeing himself, a higher version of himself that is not stuck in this matrix or in this reality. And that becomes what he's so passionate about preaching and wanting people to experience. So that what he's saying in Romans 7 is he's saying, look, this version of you that is under the law really doesn't exist. See, this Jericho that was destroyed really doesn't exist. You just believe the story. In the same way about yourself, that you that's limited, 
That you that's anxious, that you that's depressed, that you that's confused, that you that's worthless, that you that's just a sinner, that you that's under the curse, that's you that's, that's, that's powerless, that you that's hopeless, that you that's helpless, whatever the case may be, that you that is bound to obligations that you don't want to keep. Because <laughs> the life of God is completely and totally freeing and liberating. You see it? And it exists as part of you. So, so let's do it this way. There is a you that exists in higher density vibrational levels that the Bible calls the heavens. That exists in an invisible arena at a higher frequency. That's you. that has a consciousness that is connected to the life of God and completely transcendent to anything that you know in this physical time-space reality. And for whatever reason, and we can't possibly know all the reasons, that you agreed... To lower, to take a fraction of that consciousness, lower its vibration, and come into the world taking on physical form to experience this time-space world. As part of that agreement, you would forget everything else. Okay, how many of you have had a dream at night? Anytime, a dream. Do you remember that you're asleep? Unless you're lucid dreaming, where you know you're in a dream and you're... But for most of us and most of the time, do you remember that you fell asleep? No? And the only world that exists is the dream world in that moment, right? And then you wake up from it, and depending on whether the dream, depending on the judgment you put on the dream or the emotional experience of the dream, you're like, oh man, that was just a dream. Because it was really good. I was on the beach someplace and whatever. Right? Or it was a nightmare of a dream, and you're really glad you woke up. So, that is a fragmentation of your consciousness. You see it? It's living inside that sliver of a dream world for a few minutes while you go to sleep at night. I'd like to suggest to you that that is a very good analogy to what your life today is like. When, when you come into the world, it's like you go to sleep and you exist inside the matrix of a consciousness that is organically limited by your experiences in time and space. 
and awakening, being born again, being born from above, is the moment that your consciousness awakens or expands and then transcends the dream. And you have some remembrance of who you are. And the moment that happens, you have access to a completely different experience and quality of life regardless of what's going on in your three-dimensional time-space experience. And that cannot happen because you got baptized, or because you prayed a prayer, or because you read a book. And I'd like to suggest to you that's the life of God that Paul is talking about. That that is the gate of access. And that the primary mission of Jesus was to help us wake up in the dream so that we could remember who we are and we could begin to live from a higher dimensional vibrational density and frequency. And that when that happens, you no longer have to play the same games that you were playing before, governed by the same old agreements and the same old laws and the same old stuff that you were doing, because you're living from a realm that transcends even this life. We take our decisions so seriously. We take our lives so seriously. If we could realize this, but it, like a dream, it's just a sliver of who you are. I'll leave you with this. Jesus, you know the parable. Which of you having a hundred sheep, if one wanders off, does not leave the ninety-nine to go after the one? Can I just tell you right now, every pastor ever, because the word pastor means shepherd, and I hate that, I hate that title, I hate it, because I don't think you're dumb sheep. And that's just another subconscious thing that is planted to hold you in bondage and captivity. And the whole system stinks. Because I'm going to tell you right now, any pastor worth his weight hates that parable. Because people come and go in churches all the time. And people will get, people to act any way they want, do whatever they want, and then somebody's gonna come along and say, if you're a good shepherd, you're gonna do like Jesus, and you're gonna leave the 99, and you're gonna go after the one. That is a recipe for a codependency and a nervous breakdown. I'm sorry, you're responsible for yourself. <laughs> if you get lost, I pray God sends you help, but I ain't it. Because that's not even what that's not even what that parable is talking about. What if ninety nine percent of you exists in heavenly places with expanded consciousness, 
and you have this 1% that has broken off and forgotten it was part of the flock. And that's the you in your time-space experience when you've forgotten who you are. And the job of the shepherd is not some earthly human being, but the great shepherd who came to earth (laughs) to find you and reconnect you to that collective higher consciousness in order that you might ascend, in order that you might transcend, in order that you might enter the kingdom of heaven. In order that you might receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. So next time you're taking your problem so seriously, just remember it's a very small part of a very small part of you. Whatever your problem is, this may, if, it's, if it's occupying your entire life, it's only 1% of who you are. And because it's happening in time and space, it's only a percentage of a percentage of 1% of who you are. And if we start relating to people that way, realize, man, you are much bigger. Aaron, you are much bigger in your consciousness and potential than what any of us can see and experience. And if we just began to see each other that way and just realize, yeah, we're living the dream. You get it? And the goal is to wake up. I hope that helps. Does that make sense? All your problems are no more real than the story of Jericho. It only has strength because you believe it at the expense of remembering who you really are. Let's stand up. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Another opportunity for growth and expansion, right? Saints, we've been lied to. God is not this monster in the sky that orders mass murders. That supports one ethnic race above another. Because he's chosen that people. You're not chosen. That dirt over there, that's holy. Your, Your dirt, not so holy. That's holy land. This... So ridiculous. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. I just pray your blessing upon each of us. Lord, help us to take these truths and expand our consciousness, expand our awareness, awaken, and live from those higher dimensional realms in those higher dimensional frequencies. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.